Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. start out today by saying thank you to the listeners of this podcast who bear with me as I try to create these episodes as a supplement to a very busy life. I try to produce as I can, but also with a mind to quality. And if I feel that quality will suffer, I prefer to wait until I have something that's useful to offer. This can mean sometimes a month between episodes, but I appreciate the people who stick with me on this journey regardless. The following conversation is with Johanna, a registered nurse in Canada who is no longer practicing, but who was willing to come on and share her experiences working in the healthcare system there after a private conversation we had about the healthcare and private insurance context in the U.S. What's important as a takeaway is that no system is perfect, but there are still better and best practices and opportunities for improvement no matter where we are. She spoke to me very candidly about racism and access struggles in the Canadian healthcare system. And as someone living in the U.S., I know we have our own statistics that show similar access disparities and quality of care issues due to systemic racism. But by far, our largest issue, which Canada does not share to nearly the same degree, is the U.S. willingness to place profit over people, money over lives, and put human beings in the position of choosing their money or their life, or worse, sometimes the lives of their loved ones. I want to say that although I have extensive experience as a patient and informal caregiver in the U.S., both pre-Affordable Care Act and post-Affordable Care Act, I am not a health care or insurance expert. I'm just a citizen who's left to negotiate the U.S. health care and insurance systems like all the many other citizens in the country where I live, who are likewise left to also negotiate and navigate a complicated and dispassionate system where even seeking care or utilizing access is often actively discouraged. There may be exceptions to some of the things I say. For example, after speaking to Johanna about lifetime caps on insurance and saying that the ACA abolished them, I researched and found that they actually remain in some types of care, such as organ transplants. This topic is large and complicated. And if you have a need or a desire to seek expert information on anything mentioned in this episode, as always, I actively encourage you to seek out those expert opinions and voices. I know what I experienced and what I was told and what I learned. And Johanna knows what she was taught and what happened where she worked. And this is what we'll be discussing today, not as an interview, but as a conversation between a patient in the U.S. and a healthcare worker in Canada. I hope this discussion will leave you with some takeaways and something to think about. Can you talk a little bit about your qualifications and your background? Because there is a reason that I brought you on for this conversation. I was trained as a nurse. I'm still actually a registered nurse. I graduated in 2020 when the pandemic hit. 
We were expressed, launched into the world. They graduated everybody saying, the world needs you now. And we're like, oh my gosh, okay. So I went in and worked in the Montreal designated COVID hospital for a while. And I did a bit of community work as well, trying to find the best fit for me. The system that I work in here in Quebec, the healthcare system is just, it's very difficult because there's so much underfunding. You end up feeling kind of burnt out because you're not providing the care that you would like to provide. It's not paid well either. So you kind of are in a weird situation where you're like, I'm losing a lot of me. I'm giving a lot of myself to other people. I'm sacrificing a lot of my own life to do this. I'm not winning anywhere. I'm not providing good care. I don't have any time for myself. I don't have time to provide proper care, quality care. And also, I'm not getting paid very well. So I don't really know what I'm doing here other than burning myself out. I had to take a leave for a while and I, had, I got out of there and now I'm doing other things. I think the model of Canada is a good concept. I think the issue is how it's implemented in Canada. That's where it fails. The U.S. model is catastrophic. It's not supportive of individuals or even contemplates individuals who struggle, who are just trying to make it in life, just surviving. Because a lot of us are in that situation. Life is hard, you know, all of a sudden you become an adult and life is extremely challenging and you have debts to pay and you have things you need to buy and money comes and money goes. And if you're not wealthy and you don't have family to help you out and if you happen to just be doing it yourself, well, what if you get sick? The model in the U.S. doesn't support the possibility of you getting critically ill. I had put in two examples. One was an ad that I had seen from St. Jude where it actually featured a father of a little girl who was struggling with cancer. The St. Jude is a facility that helps children with chronic illness, and they cover all of the medical expenses for the families. They take care of everything. This is a charitable organization. It's not government funded. They might be the recipients of grants, but it's not a government program. The ad featured this father who was talking, and his story was that he has a good job, he has good insurance through his job, but when they found out the child had cancer, there was no way they could afford it. This isn't even a person that's struggling. This is a system that is set up to only work if you don't get sick. So what is the point of health care access through insurance that you then can't afford? It's like having auto insurance that only covers you if you don't have an accident. <laughs> yeah, it almost is like it doesn't really matter. There is no access. It's for you to feel like maybe you have a chance, but actually you don't. The right. only way to access it is to get yourself into an incredible amount of debt. Yeah. And the other example that I had was someone that I know who has a good job and good insurance through their work. They're here local where I live. They had brain cancer. Now they've gotten a recurrence of it. They work at a large national company with really good, robust insurance available to them. And they have a GoFundMe. We don't have a system that supports health care for people who actually need it. It's only there for people who don't need it. It's very frightening to think of, honestly. 
You were asking me a little bit about how it worked. And I was honest with you that every single year here in the U.S., I work for a company where we have good insurance and we go through the whole presentation of here is all the different insurance options that you have. This one has this copay, this out of pocket, mm -hmm. this deductible. There's all these different little things. You're responsible for this part and that part and the other part. And then you pay the premium, but you still have the deductible and you still mm -hmm. and you were even at one point. I had explained something to you and you were just like, oh, okay, so you paid up front and then they reimburse you. And I'm like, no, they don't reimburse me. I pay that. That's my part that I owe. It was interesting for me to have to explain to you that even with the insurance, I'm still paying. Our entire system seems to be built on the fantasy that you never, ever get sick. Unless you just drop dead of some catastrophic event that just mm -hmm. kills you on the spot, you will eventually need to have some kind of insurance or coverage when you get ill or when your child gets ill or someone in your family gets ill. You're going to need this. That's when it's not there for you. I guess I'm kind of confused at the genesis of the whole idea of uh, healthcare in the U.S. I don't understand what is being pitched to the population. I'm confused as well. If I were to live there and want to start a family, let's say I have, I probably can't afford to have kids. One of the things that precipitated this conversation was that I sent you a clip of someone who just gave birth. Their baby was in the NICU and they got a big bill and it wasn't even including the expenses for the child. It was just for her and it was like 92000 with expenses and fees and materials. So if I were to live in the States, like I'm starting a family, do I want to start at minus? 92,000. I'm assuming the insurance covers a portion of that, but what portion of that? And I guess that depends on what kind of good insurance you have. Yeah, but that's still. what I was going to say is I can't even answer that because I don't know what her insurance is or if she has insurance or what her situation is. Even at my company where they offer insurance, there's so many different plans. I can't tell you from one person to the next mm. what's covered. There are basic things that are required to be covered now. When this conversation started, I had started kind of telling you the story of what had happened to me mm -hmm. in the pre-Obama years. So the Affordable Care Act is what mm -hmm. Obama put in place. He had run on a platform for something called the public option. The public option was supposed to extend government benefits to people who were uninsured or uninsurable because of costs or it's not offered through their work or they have some sort of critical illness that was being used against them to exclude them from insurance. Mm -hmm. You would have a person that the insurance companies literally didn't want to insure. They found the person to be too sick to be profitable. And so they would do these legal maneuvers to make sure that that person did not have access to their product. Usually that was either just excluding the pre-existing condition. So you come to them and you're like, I really need insurance. I was diagnosed with cancer. I have to have coverage. And they're just like, oh yeah, well, since you already have cancer, it's a pre-existing condition and we're not going to cover that. Or they would say, oh, great. Yeah, we'll take you on and your premium is going to be $1,200 a month. And the person is just like, I can't afford that. Oof. So offer the insurance, but it was always in some way that made it useless to the person that needed it if they were really sick. And so what Obama was saying is clearly the insurance companies don't want to cover these people. So they are costing us. They're going to an ER because they can't get a doctor to take them without insurance. We might as well just extend the government coverage that we already give to certain groups of people that are usually economically underprivileged and just let these people be covered through that. When he tried to implement it, the Republicans did everything in their power to stop it. One of the arguments that they made was that it was undercutting private businesses like insurance companies. And that was ridiculous because these were already the people that the insurance companies were rejecting. They didn't want these people as customers.
there was nothing that they were saying that was making any sense. Ultimately, Obama realized that he wasn't going to be able to put something through unless it included somehow private enterprise, that there wasn't going to be an extension of government benefits that was, that was not going to be allowed to pass. And so they came up with the exchange, which is where they subsidize in certain ways these private insurers that become part of the exchange and they offer all these different programs and then people have to go on there and they have to shop for these things and they pick one that they like and if you don't earn enough money they will subsidize it i have friends who get their insurance i'll say for free putting that in quotes because they're not paying a premium but they are taxed on the money the government pays for the insurance and then additionally, they do have still all of the fees that are required when you have insurance, the out-of-pocket, the deductible. They have all of that that is still on their plate. They're just basically getting insurance and the government's trying to help them out because these are people that do not get it through their work. You cannot apply for the ACA program if you have insurance offerings through your work. So if you have another way to get insurance, you can't use the ACA. You can only use it if you legitimately cannot get insurance any other way. That's how they're covered right now. This is how it morphed into what it is today. And the government in some way works it with those insurance companies to make sure that they're not losing money on this. We end up paying private companies who don't want these customers to take these customers. And then we subsidize it with tax dollars. And I'm just like, why can't we just <laughs> extend the programs already paid for with tax dollars like Obama wanted to in the first place? If we're going to pay for it anyway, I'd rather my money goes right straight to care than through an insurance company and then to care. If it's going to be tax dollars anyway, why not that? The conclusion kind of comes back to the same. The Affordable Care Act gives you access to insurance, but then once you get it, you still have these fees, you still have these things. So if you're really dire, you still mm -hmm. are unable to pay. Before the Affordable Care Act, my question is, so if you are homeless, say, and you cannot afford even to eat your next meal, but you need emergency care and you go to the ER, what happens? Do they treat you? Do they refuse you? What yes. Happens? Okay. So at an emergency room, they are not allowed to reject you. They have to take you and they are required to, and I'm going to put this in quotes, stabilize you mm -hmm. and then they can put you back out. And we saw recently with Lisa Edwards, Lisa Edwards went into a hospital. She was having a stroke. She was taken in, stabilized and put out of one hospital, went to another hospital, still not doing well. She had had a stroke before. She was like, I'm having another stroke. I need help. They quote, stabilized her. They put her out. She could not walk. She wasn't mobile. The hospital called the police because she wouldn't quote leave. She was unable to leave. And when the police showed up, she said, I can't move. And they're just like, well, you're going to need to get into the car. If you don't leave, we're going to have to arrest you. And she's like, I'm not oh well. Like, I can't leave. And she was struggling to even speak. Well, she ends up dying. And the police are mocking her and laughing and manhandling her. You know, this, this older disabled woman who is having a stroke and is rejected mm. by two hospitals who both claim that, no, 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 she was stable till she died as the cops were trying to get her into a van. It's like, this is the problem, right? So the it's hospital horrible. has no incentive to actually do more for you than they think they have to do before they can put you out the door again. That is terrifying. Yeah, it is. I think the model that we have here is definitely better than that. A lot of things in the States are just terrifying. You know, this just adds to the list of terrifying things that go on there. But stabilizing, that could mean anything. That's very minimal to quote unquote stabilize someone. You could have just taken their pressure and given them a pill and been like, good luck. That's very scary. 
a stroke is so serious. So that's really unfortunate. Uh, but that's one story out of many. And especially with a model like that, is it really tracking the amount of people that can't access care because they're not insured and die from this? I'm sure they are. I'm There's sure there are. probably more people with insurance now than had it before. But part of the problem, like you're saying, is that even with insurance, you're not really protected. Mm-hmm. But what's sad is you're more protected now than you were before ACA, because ACA wasn't just about extending insurance to people. It also extended patient rights. And we still have this mess. We have not solved for yeah. healthcare access. Some of the improvements were that health insurance companies used to be able to cap your coverage. So after you hit a million dollars or $2 million in costs, you were on your own. That was it. You had a lifetime limit there that you hit. Another thing that they did was pre-existing conditions are no longer allowed. Mm -hmm. So a company can't penalize you or reject you for that. Not that long ago, the Republicans were trying to undo that, trying to allow the companies to raise those rates again for a pre-existing condition, which would just lock people out of insurance again. It was such a horrible idea. I had written up a story that I wanted to share with you that was what happened when my husband got cancer pre-Obama, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a true story of what happened to me. This was insurance pre-Obama, but today it's not that much better. There's a few things in the story that have changed for which I would have been really grateful at the time, but I still am not happy with where we are in the U.S. with healthcare. About two years after I got married, my husband was diagnosed with stage three cancer, which is pretty advanced cancer. It could be stage four, but I remember when we talked to one of the surgeons and he said, what happens if I don't get treated? He's like, it goes to stage four and there is no stage five. That's end stage cancer. Not that nobody ever gets out of stage four, but it's difficult. So stage three is also not good. So we found out that he had stage three cancer and I was working at the time for this really small family owned local company that had about 30 employees. The company provided insurance as a benefit. It was not the best package in the world, but it was reasonable for the time. And they paid part of the premiums for the employees, which is normal when you're working like at a corporate environment for them to cover part or all of your premiums. I think usually the employee pays part of it. Mm -hmm. So at this time, pre-existing conditions were still a thing. Insurance companies could hold a pre-existing condition against you. But there was this situation where an insurance company couldn't introduce that. So if I am a customer at an insurance company pre-Obama and I get sick with something, they can't then say, okay, well, now it's a pre-existing condition because you got it. So if I'm already covered, they can't do that. Mm -hmm. And they can't introduce it as long as you do not have a gap in coverage, right? So that was the rule. So as long as you continued insurance, even if you switched to another company, but as long as there was no gap in your insurance, that condition was covered and could not be not covered by the company. So if you had something like that and you didn't disclose it and it was found out later that you had a record of it, you could lose your insurance over it. And if you did disclose it, the insurance company, although they couldn't stop you from having insurance, they could raise your premiums. And usually they would just price you out of your insurance. This usually meant that they would do a broad exclusion. And one example of this was when I was working at a really small company and they wanted to put an insurance 
benefit in place. And I put down that I had had a yeast infection. And what was interesting is that I don't really even know if I had a yeast infection. I had talked to a doctor who said they thought maybe that's what it was, but whatever it was, it wasn't a big deal. It cleared up. When I put that down, which is something that's extremely common, the insurance company came back and said that they were going to exclude any and all issues that were tied to my reproductive health, any reproductive organs, any anything like that. They are not going to cover it. It's excluded. Because I put down that I thought I had a yeast infection. Very extreme. Extremely extreme. <laughs> so I just want to give you an example of what that means. When they're talking about this, it's, it's ridiculous. It became extremely important that my ex not have a gap in insurance because if he had to be reinsured, the cancer would be identified as a pre-existing condition. And this meant that it was going to be excluded or we would not be able to afford the premiums. At the point that you have cancer, especially late stage cancer, you know you're looking at multiple years of treatment. If you have that gap, you'll never get insurance. Even if you beat the cancer, though, it's always going to be held against you. It's not like you're having cancer. It's like I had cancer a year ago. They're still going to say you had cancer and that's a pre-existing condition and they're going to hold that against you. The insurance that we had at my company had to cover him because we were already customers. And the next year, Because you have to re-up every year. We had to renew the contract with the insurance company. The insurance company raised the premiums to the point that nobody at my company could afford it anymore. And even though it was the same amount as my monthly apartment rent, I couldn't say no, because if I lost the insurance entirely, I would never be able to insure my husband again. Mm -hmm. And that would mean that we would lose access to health care for him and he would die without treatment. So if I didn't come up with the money to pay that premium, it meant he was going to be looking at a death sentence. But honestly, the private insurance company wasn't interested in having everyone pay more. They weren't really expecting everyone to say, oh, yes, we'll pay that much for it. They just wanted us gone as a customer because his treatment would still have left them paying out more in benefits than they'd be taking in from the 30 people at our company. We weren't going to be profitable as customers to them. So my husband was seen as a liability for their bottom line, not a human life. And this meant that they would do better dropping the whole company's insurance because they'd never recoup those costs for long-term cancer treatment from the premiums out of a small company. And it worked because once I was the only one willing to pay that amount, they then, in the pre-Obama years, had a legal right to drop insurance for the entire company, citing a, quote, lack of participation. And this was standard practice for insurance companies at the time. So our entire company lost the benefits package because one person's spouse got cancer. If your customer becomes seriously ill and they need medical care, it's going to be expensive. So they can just raise the rate, call it your choice to stay uninsured or not. And this is what the GOP was promoting as freedom that people shouldn't have to pay for insurance premiums if they didn't want to. But they totally ignored that a lot of people didn't want to pay that because paying that meant not having money for other expenses like housing and food and utility and gas, et cetera. Basically your money or your life. It was this very blackmail extortion vibe. And I was facing losing the insurance through my company. And I knew that we would be left uninsurable and unable to pay for his medical care. Just imagine that someone you love, your family, has a treatable illness, but you can legally be denied treatment because of your economic class. I have literally seen science fiction films about that kind of dystopian future, 
that had that as a theme. But what I found ironic is that it's actually not fiction. It's reality. It was the reality I was living. And I think it's still the reality today in the U.S. So my employer, who was actually really interested in our situation, who actually liked me, they found something called the Texas Health Insurance Risk Pool. And the risk pool was a type of cooperative setup where Texas provided state insurance to people who weren't able to gain access to private insurance through their companies. Like I couldn't get it myself and I, it wasn't provided anymore through my company. So I now qualified for this Texas health insurance risk pool. So when my company dropped the insurance plan, they said I should look into this instead. So I had this heads up. We're going to lose the insurance. You need to sign up for this other thing so that you continue your coverage. You don't get a gap. The risk pool was through the state, similar to what Obama was proposing nationally, that we just cover everyone who insurance companies don't want to insure because they're not profitable. So Texas is extending this state plan to us, but it was more of a cooperative model. So the difference was that Obama wanted to just extend the existing national programs to the uninsurable people, but Texas still wants you to pay in like a regular insurance company. So this risk pool was also coming with a premium. And when I saw the premiums, they were just like what the insurance company that had dropped us was asking for in the re-up. So I had to pay premiums that were the same as my rent each month to the state of Texas in order to not have a gap in our insurance. So we didn't lose insurance and then lose any hope of coverage for my husband's cancer treatment by creating an opening for a pre-existing condition to be inserted into his insurance record. Bear in mind that my husband was too sick to work during this treatment. So we had two adults, one who required care, and a household where we had only one income. I was not only helping with his home care, but I was being there for surgeries and treatments and consultations. And I wanted to be sure that I was able to support him appropriately with decisions around treatment, to advocate for him when he needed it. And I had to hold down a full-time job and keep us in basic necessities. And I was also paying a second rent to the state of Texas to make sure we weren't barred from treatment access. And as if this weren't enough, my premiums were only to keep us insured. They weren't the only costs associated with care. We had medical institutions that were calling us about debt and telling us that we owed them money. And a lot of places required payment up front. And for me to sign forms saying that I would be liable for the payments if my husband wasn't able to make them, which he clearly couldn't. So on top of the double rent that I'm paying that's created by the cost of just the privilege of having an insurance card, my husband in a post-treatment stupor told the hospital billing department that we would agree to another couple hundred dollars each month until we paid off the debt. So he told me about this when I got home. And I was so angry, but I had to maintain because I wasn't going to blow up on somebody with cancer. Mm -hmm. And this whole mess I knew was not his fault, but I was upset that he bound me to what amounted to another third of our rent each month in medical bills on top of everything else. It was incredibly stressful and I felt like I was drowning. I kept thinking that his odds of survival were very slim already. But you can't just tell someone that you love that you're giving up on their life because it's too much money and stress to keep them breathing. So in the really dark moments when I was alone with my thoughts, I couldn't even feel. All I could think was that I was going to be a widow in my 30s just after a few years of marriage and left bankrupted by medical bills while I was insured. It can actually make a person start to resent not just the cancer, but the person you love. 
it's really selfish from the standpoint of they're the ones dealing with the uncertain future of life or death. But if they die, you're the one who not only is left with your grief, but you're holding the bag for a pile of bills that you're paying for medical treatment that failed. Mm -hmm. So the total bill for the interferon that he was treated with, this is the drug that they gave him, just the interferon was $80,000 for a year's worth. So you could either pay your rent for premiums and another third of your rent to cover your further expenses that insurance isn't going to cover, or you can take on $80,000 for the year. So yeah, the insurance gouging was better than paying for the interferon, but we were still well and truly screwed either way. And in the end, I powered through it, but I became a huge advocate for promoting the public option when Obama ran for president. The way insurance was running was not sustainable. And there were horror stories all the time back then about people who died or were denied treatment or who were screwed over one of a million ways by the insurance industry and these obscene loopholes. And I really want to make sure that people do not forget what that was like. We're still not in a good place. It's better than it was, but we can't go back to what it was before. Just to let people know, the treatment did in fact fail. And we ended up in an experimental treatment program and we used a charity group called Angel Flights to help get him to and from treatment in another state. We had to secure housing for him in another state with a relative so that he could fly to Virginia for treatment because the volunteer pilots had a limit on how far they would fly people as far as miles. We lived in Texas. We were too far from Virginia to qualify. And that's pretty much like my whole story in a nutshell. My husband is still alive. We are no longer married. And I think that stress of everything that we went through probably contributed to breaking things. <laughs> but at the same time, I look still at that time as I feel like that's one of the best things I've ever done in my life as far as being able to be there for somebody who needed that. One of the best things you could do in your life? Yeah, I feel like I saved somebody's life. Yeah, I feel like you definitely did because if he's alone, I just feel like it's every person for themselves. In that case, you need charities, you need someone to help you find resources. You definitely need some kind of community to help you out there when it's so careless. Like the healthcare system does not care. <laughs> you well, know, yeah, doesn't yeah care. their their goal is profit. That's yeah, they're that's, a business. Oh boy, that's horrible. That's a very touching and frightening story. It's very sad. I'm glad that he is still alive now. I can't even imagine just having such an illness already that's terrifying and then have to constantly be worrying on if you're going to be able to afford the treatment. At least here, that's not so much the worry about if you can afford the treatment. It's more like if you have access, if you can get in to the door. We have universal health care. The treatment is there. You can access it. It's free in quotations. You do pay for healthcare in taxes. But when you get there to the hospital or when you get there to your doctor, you don't think about having right. to pay a thing. We call it know? free at point of service. Exactly. It's free at point of service. You do pay into it. But the way that it's done, I mean, we're taxed a lot here, especially in Quebec. Like I worked as a nurse and we were taxed the whole lot. It's kind of weird because you're working in healthcare. You're helping mm -hmm. provide the care, but you're getting paid so little because you're paying into the system that's paying you <laughs> so much. It's, it's interesting anyway. But uh, yeah, it's free uh, at point of service, which is a relief. 
but it's hard to find the care you need. At least now in Quebec, post-pandemic, it's definitely more difficult. I speak mostly of Quebec because we have our own separate thing going on as opposed to the rest of Canada. And I, and since I'm so involved in what's going on here and I was in healthcare here, it just kind of like consumes me to be really informed about what's going on here. But there's that relief, but there's the stress. So from what I understand, since like the 1980s, our hospitals have been working at uh, maximum capacity. So there's like, they're cutting the amount of beds available per capita and they're trying to like hold on to all the resources. So not waste anything, not to have any staff that's available. Basically, everyone's working to their maximum and the beds are at a minimum. And apparently in all of the um, quote unquote, I don't know how to say this, like developed world, we have the lowest amount of beds per capita. Other countries, they might be able to take care of their people. We have a lot of people waiting for care without being able to get in through the door or waiting for months for surgeries, years for surgeries, or just like more on a day-to-day basis, waiting 11 hours or so on in ER. The way that the system works here, um, it's funded by the governments. The federal government pays each province a certain amount for their own healthcare system. And then each province governs it the way that they want. In Quebec, we have a system that that is extremely underfunded, or I don't know where the money is going because we pay a lot to it, but it's broken. We have no staff. Hospital ERs are closing down. Uh, Ambulances are not showing up. It's kind of scary too, in a different way, because technically we could access the terrifying thing about the states is that you could end up going to the ER without being covered and being stabilized and turned away and dying. Here, that's not so much the case. You could still go to the ER. They're able to triage you and see who's more, uh, who has more of an emergency than the other. But you can fall because it's happened, I think, last summer. Uh, an elderly lady fell in her home and she waited 11 hours and died because there were no ambulances available because we're so short staffed. But essentially, I think like the system, the way that it's made, it works. It's nice to be able to know that technically on paper, you're everybody's supposed to be able to have a family doctor that can take care of your chronic issues or something that's a lot more minor or something that requires just a prescription and, you know, you could be on your way or to have any treatment be available to you. You know, there are a few things that are excluded out of our universal plan. Things like therapy and home care and dental care, vision care. These things are expensive. For that, we need private insurance. And it kind of works like the insurance that you guys have. I guess insurance everywhere is almost the same. We do have to pay a certain amount. It depends on what plan you have. Just like what you said, it depends. You don't know what everybody has. It depends on what plan you're in with your insurance company. But there are a few things that are not covered under the universal health care that we have. So prescription drugs, you can get onto a plan with the government for that. But usually it's a private company that will cover a better amount of the cost for your drugs for a medication. So yeah, basically how it's supposed to work. You have your general practitioner that takes care of uh, your routine things, your annuals and making sure that you're healthy. This is like the idea. And then when you you need care and treatment for major illnesses and so on, that is covered. It's supposed to work. It's got to work somewhere. But since we were running at conserving resources, working at maximum capacity and restricting and keeping the budget so low, as soon as the pandemic hit, whoever was already stretched very thin couldn't stretch any longer. So we lost a lot of nurses. We lost a lot of doctors. We lost a lot of patient attendants. We lost a lot of EMTs. 
And so when the pandemic hit, we had people dying a lot because there was nobody to take care. We had where we live in Montreal, there was a, a home care, a residence for seniors. A large percentage of the residents just died because there was nobody to work. I was working as a, um, a nurse for gynecologists. And she would come into work extremely stressed, saying there are no nurses to scrub into my to my surgeries. And these are life-saving surgeries. These are women who have precancerous cells or cancer. And I'm unable to do the procedure that will remove these cells and stop the progression of their illness or the cancer that could develop or the cancer that was already developed. It was a very stressful time. And we continue to be in such a stressful time here in terms of healthcare. It's not as bad, but it's still difficult. I think there's about 800,000 people in Quebec that don't have a family doctor. That translates, though, into more people going to the ER when they have things that could be easily treated with a family doctor. And since we have very limited staff, there are ERs that are completely shutting down. And so to be able to access care, you have to go somewhere else. There are not many walk-in clinics. The walk-in clinics are already overcapacitated. So like you're driving far for the ER just to try to get maybe antibiotics for your UTI. It changes things. I was interested in when you said about the woman that died waiting for service at the ER. I know I've been in the ER where I've waited for hours and hours. So it's not like you walk into an ER here in the U.S. and are immediately seen. I remember in one situation where I was in, I was almost on the floor because I was in so much pain. And my husband at the time actually called another hospital to see about if we could go there. And they said, no, if you're already in the ER, no, we can't take you. So we couldn't try another hospital. We were just stuck where we were. What I find interesting about that is the contrast story with Lisa Edwards, who actually was admitted to two ERs, was treated at two ERs, and then was released to die. So it becomes a question, I guess, of what's better, not what's perfect. It's always good to improve things, even if that means taking some things that work and some things that don't, you know, and getting rid of those. In the U.S., when we look at another model like what you're doing in Canada, we'll say things like, well, look at the wait times in Canada. And it's true. When I looked it up, y'all do have longer wait times, <laughs> not just for, you know, an ER visit, but also, like you said, if it's not an emergency surgery, you're going to have to wait for that. I know that the United States, we are the worst country for maternal mortality. The number two slot is like half of what we are. And then it just goes down from there. And we're talking about countries that are considered to be like a quote developed nation. I know there's no good way to differentiate these countries and I don't mean any disrespect. Whatever you want to call those nations, we're the worst by far when it comes to maternal mortality rates. And we also have lower life expectancies than you do in Canada. And ours are, I think, declining or starting to decline. Even Your life expectancy is declining? So we are. Our, <laughs> our U.S. life expectancy is declining. People like to brag about our healthcare system. 
And maybe the life expectancy issue, you know, I, I don't know for a fact that it's all about healthcare. It could be different things. Yes. Uh, a lot of stuff contributes to life expectancy. But the point is, we liked to brag a lot about how our healthcare system was, you know, quote, the best in the world. But if you're a pregnant woman, we are clearly not the best in the world to be taking care of you. And we're not the best in the world when it comes to making sure that everybody has equitable access. And we're not the best in the world when it comes to medical debt, being able to afford treatment without having to set up your own GoFundMe or appeal to some charity that will hopefully have room for your child who's dying of cancer because your really good insurance at the company that you work for is still leaving you bankrupting with medical bills. I'm just wondering who said that the United States has the best medical. Oh, well, medical just, ask, just ask us. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's the thing, you know, we're the greatest. Just, just ask us. Exactly. Yeah, we're, we're the ones saying it's the best in the world. It's, it's all the I'm people, saying. all of the people who don't want to improve the system, who have pretty much bought into this narrative that privatized healthcare is the way to go. We've got this weird fixation with privatization. Mm-hmm, right agree. now we're, de- we're defunding our schools. We're actively defunding public schools in order to make education privatized. And we are also actively um, looking for ways to defund our libraries. We've started defunding libraries in order to shut those down. And they're oh my using, gosh. well, they're using the book ban stuff to go after the libraries. So they've gotten people all riled about horrible books being available to people. And so now they're using that to sort of get the populace on their side to shut down these libraries, which, you know, who does that benefit when you shut down a free service? It benefits the private sector, the, the for-profit sector. And it's the same with the post office. Uh, When Trump was in office, we watched this attack on the post office. And as far as I know, the guy who was put in place to dismantle the post office, the postal service, is still in charge of it. They don't want the people to be able to utilize their own tax dollars for the general welfare. Over there, you guys are paying taxes that those taxes go to the army. What exactly does it go to? So I'm looking at the pie chart for the U.S. budget. The number one thing that we pay for, can you guess? The U.S. Army? No. You health insurance. Health a, insurance. Stop it. Stop health it. insurance. Stop it. 25% of our that. budget goes to health insurance. <laughs> Where? Um, to pay the insurance That's a quarter. So like, yeah, yeah. So now, to be fair, that includes the government subsidized things like Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. you know, CHIP for kids and stuff like that. Oh, wow. And the second thing is Social Security, which I fully support. It's the U.S. pension fund, basically, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't do enough. And the GOP is constantly wanting to cut it back. They got very upset when Biden called them out on wanting to end Social Security. They said that's not what they want to do. However, there are many quotes from many uh, Republican politicians saying exactly that. So their outrage was kind of, you know, miss me with that, right? Because <laughs> if y'all if y'all don't want to do that, then you need to call out your your members who are saying that's what you want to do. Wow. Um, the next thing up is this sort of combined thing that is like all these little things. So this is what's really sad: education, three percent; transportation, two percent; natural resources and agriculture, one percent; science and medical research, one percent. Law enforcement, 1%. I'm not going to shed tears over law enforcement, but international, which I assume is like um, foreign aid, 1%. 
Um, and then they have this sort of all other basket that they're saying is, is 5%. But the, the next big one, you know, beyond that, like that little grouping is put together as one thing in this pie chart. But the next thing up is defense, which is 13% of the budget. And what's interesting is that I saw someone recently saying like, oh, but the GOP wants to fund, you know, defense. And I said, you know what? Not so much anymore. Now the GOP is even going after that and saying to cut budgets on military, which probably makes some folks happy. It makes me a little concerned just because when the GOP wants to cut military budget, I have to ask myself why, especially in the wake of somebody who was really bent on weakening the United States, handing over the keys to people like Putin and um, North Korea. And, you know, so we've had a lot of problems recently that make me a little concerned about somebody suddenly changing course on, you know, the defense budget, because I just have a hard time believing that they've decided that, you know, war is not a good thing because they're so humanitarian. I'm I'm doubting they would have good reason for that. Good point. <laughs> the other thing is economic security programs, which is probably a good thing. Benefits for veterans and federal retirees. I'm okay with people having, you know, benefits if they go into civil service. Oh, and 7% is interest on debt, which is not a big shock. Mm. Anyway, I, that's our budget. But yeah, I did not know this before you started talking to me about it. But apparently health insurance is a big old slice of that pie. It accounts for a big one fourth of our budget. That's very interesting information to ponder now. I mean, if you're going to put that much money into it, make it great. <laughs> yeah, make it great. You'd figure if a fourth of our taxes are going to it, it's like it should be awesome. It should be accessible to all. <laughs> I complained about a pain in my chest that I was having, and I talked to my doctor about it. It's on the right side, so I wasn't that worried about it. It's one of these things that just kind of bugs me. Like, why is this happening? And he's just like, well, let's get, let's send you to a cardiologist. They send me to a card. Now, bear in mind, other than like a little bit of high cholesterol, I don't, I'm not having like heart problems, right? So this is just sort of a curiosity visit. So I go to the cardiologist and I'm like, yeah, let's see what the cardiologist says, because I'm tired of this pain in my chest and you know, what's mm -hmm. going on? So I talked to her and she's like, yeah, it doesn't sound like, you know, any kind of bad issue, but let's, you know, let's do some tests. Let's run some, some scans and whatnot. They did some couple of scans, and I was scheduled to do this one. I don't remember what it was. It was some kind of cardio scan where you lay down and they scan you and look at your heart and they're checking for like yeah. buildup and stuff in your arteries. I don't know. Yeah. They tell me, oh yeah, we'll we'll call you with like an estimate of it, and I was like, yeah, that's cool. I'm thinking tops a couple hundred bucks. So they call me back and they say that this test is going to run me about like thirteen hundred dollars. Now, this is just to find out what's going on. I don't have an actual problem. I just have a weird mystery pain that comes and goes. But nobody's found anything wrong with me. So I'm like, you know, how curious am I about this pain? Right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and, and how much do I care about the high cholesterol if everything seems fine? I end up calling them back. I got the message and I called them back and I said, what's plan B? Because this test is not going to happen. So what, what do we do now? Because we got to keep going and I'm not having this test. And they said, there's this other place you can call. 
and they will do it like not through your insurance and they can probably get you a better rate and their rates are on their website. And so I called this other place and they did it for like a couple hundred bucks. Out of pocket. Yeah. So with insurance, it's it's $1,300 for me to pay. And without insurance, it's 200 bucks. But so you have insurance, so they don't cover that 13. Either they don't cover it or they don't cover all of it or, you know, like that's my part. I don't know what it was, but I'm just saying, what if this doctor's office hadn't checked the cost? What if they hadn't gotten the estimate for me? Most doctor's offices, you know, unless it's like a small, I've never had somebody be like, you know, hey, we'll get you an estimate. Like if I need blood work and stuff, I just go down and get it done. And then the insurance company sends me something later. That says they've covered X amount. They might've covered all of it. And they'll be like, here's the part you owe, but this is not a bill. And then the doctor's office sends a bill and then I send them the money. I don't usually get an estimate before I do stuff. Now I might, if I was getting surgery or something, right. But it's like a a diagnostic. I don't usually worry about. I was really stunned when they told me like it was over a thousand dollars. I was just like, this is bizarre. So I posted on Facebook about it because I was laughing and there were people who were like, yeah, I didn't know it. And I went and had one and I ended up having to pay like $1,500 for mine. And, you know, they will say, well, it's up to the patient. You're supposed to shop it. You you know, be a smart shopper about your health care. That's the way they frame this, that it's your fault if you didn't look into this, if you didn't get these estimates, if you weren't checking. And I think it was um, the a conversation that we had where I was telling you about these hidden fees, right? Like the facility fee where somebody Mm -hmm. talked to their doctor and their doctor was covered and their insurance came back and said, yes, we will cover this portion of your doctor and this surgery and blah, blah, blah. But the facility where it was done had a separate facility fee that the patient didn't know about. It's like, how are you supposed to know? You think think you're doing it. And the thing is, why should you have to do this? Why should you have to go through a system that nobody can understand? I don't even understand it. I get the orientation every year and I can't explain it to you. I Hold can on. Do- you get the orientation of how your plan works or how the system yeah. works? I sit okay. through an orientation where they go through every single plan they're offering and they talk about all of the different things. And then basically all I do is my head spins while they're giving <laughs> all these numbers and stuff. And then I sit down with the tool and I say, here's my normal healthcare needs. And the tool says, this is what you should <laughs> sign on to. And I'm like, yeah, cool. That's the one I've got already. I've got what's called a high deductible plan. It's like a, I've got an HSA, right? So there's a health insurance savings account basically is what it is. So I pay my premiums and I have a high deductible. So my premiums are considered to be like lower premiums. And in the meantime, my money goes into a savings account, like out of my paycheck, just like when you have a 401k or something, they take it out of my paycheck. It goes into a savings account And so I just keep saving money in the savings account that I can use for medical stuff. So basically I pay my insurance company premiums and then I save money out of my own paycheck and I can use that to pay my medical expenses. So I'm paying my own medical expenses and paying for insurance. Now I don't use the savings account, right? Like I just let it ride, but hope I never need to use it. But if I do, I guess at least it's there, but it's my money. Right? It's not the insurance. That's my money. I'm just saving in case I have a medical emergency. Basically, I could do that without the insurance company. It's, it seems very hard to navigate. So <laughs> this is a moment where I'll say I'm grateful to be able to have <laughs> the system I have because you've had that situation and I've had similar situations as well, where I've 
had uh, chest pain and it turned out to be anxiety, but I don't know if anyone's ever had an anxiety attack that could really feel like a heart attack. Sure. I told my doctor, luckily I had a family doctor and he's like, let's do X, Y, and Z. Did it like within a week or so. You just show your Medicare card and it's nothing, you know, in the sense of like you have the stress of the exam and the results and so on, but you don't have on top of the stress of the exam and the results and what's happening to your health, the stress of how am I going to pay the deductible? I have to call the insurance. I despise all of the paperwork that come with adulthood to begin with. So to know that my aging body will need more care likely (laughs) as I age to have to worry as well about all the bureaucracy surrounding all that care is exhausting. I would trade it in a minute for just a healthcare card. Oh, just go in and, and, you know, say like, I need a doctor, even if I had to wait a couple of weeks to see the doctor, like I'm cool. The other thing is um, I had a friend who was playing a game of pickup basketball just out at the park he goes down on the court, like him and another guy end up running into each other. He goes down, slams his head onto the court and goes unconscious. Someone calls an ambulance and they get him. And then later he gets a bill for the ambulance. And he's just like, yeah, no, I didn't call an ambulance. Send it to the guy who called. Figure out who called, right? And they were just like, well, no. I mean, that, you know, they were explaining to him that's not how it works. And he's just like, yeah, well, that's going to work because I'm not paying you. Do, do your worst. And they were like, well, well, we'll ruin your credit. And he said, good luck. My credit's crap. What? <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> Feel free. Like, you know, pile on. Like, what you uh, could you even make it worse? My credit's garbage. Like, go for it. Over here, our ambulances are also not covered, actually. But, oh my goodness. It's very stressful. I don't know. Do you live with an anxiety of worrying about getting ill? I think everybody in the U.S. walks around in a state of anxiety. We're just so used to it that we don't even understand that that's what we're experiencing. It's it's like the state of deprivation, right? I'm the type of person who loves a bargain. So I go to the store and I'll go to a thrift shop or a secondhand store and I get this cool thing and I get it really cheap. I found a brand new pasta maker and it's not even opened and it's got all the parts and it's just like, I can't believe I found this and I got it for $12 or it's just some ridiculous mm-hmm. amount. And I've always been really excited about that kind of bargain shopping. And recently what I realized is that it's really just a sad result of deprivation. The reason that I feel like saving money and doing this bargain shopping is like something to be cool and proud of and brag about and share with people. If you felt like you had enough to really cover stuff, you wouldn't be worried about what you're paying. We literally encourage this thinking around pay less for it, find some bargain. And I was watching a a short video before this call where somebody was saying, you're $8,000 in high interest credit card debt, and yet you have a Netflix subscription. And this guy that was stitching the video said, oh yeah, let me tell you about the time I saved up my Netflix subscription price for a year and went down to pay off my credit card. You know what they told me? They said, Hey, that's only $200. Hmm. But this is the thing. We train people to think you're responsible if you can't afford stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And if you're paying too much or you're paying retail, it's almost like you should be ashamed of that or you should feel really bad about who pays, you know, full price or something like you. And we have just this whole mentality that we're so used to of deprivation. We've trained ourselves to not think that it's okay to pay full price for something, that you're that you're paying too much, that you're being ripped off if you pay full price, or if you have this $12 a month subscription to something that somehow, you know, you're responsible for your $8,000 in high interest credit card debt, because the Ooh. problem is your Netflix subscription, not that we're living in some capitalist hellscape. But we walk around with this attitude and we're trained to think of it in a way that it's not really stress and deprivation, but that's exactly what it is. Exactly. But we're just putting a lot of stress on ourselves of things that are not our doing. And in the meantime, there's billionaires. Like, do you think they're worried? Look, I can pay too much for Twitter and they don't care. We were talking about how the healthcare system in the United States, just to go full circle, is so bad, but there aren't more people who are upset about it, you know, because uh, it's that feeling of, well, the onus is on me to figure it out, to shop smarter, to this and that. You're so preoccupied with the day-to-day, the smaller things to look at the big picture and be like, wait a minute, I shouldn't even be stressing about this right now. It's your fault that you have to penny pinch. It's your fault that you're in debt. And somebody said that earlier today. Like they were just like, well, it is your fault if you're in debt. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, I'm older, but I look at what these young people are dealing with today. The amount that they've got to spend for an education, the amount that they're dealing with in the face of healthcare. When I was a kid, you got sick, you went to the doctor. There wasn't an insurance company. You just paid the doctor. Now nobody can afford a doctor. So they install insurance and nobody can afford insurance. It has gone from you pay your doctor and nobody worries about it to nobody can afford the insurance to afford the health care that they can't afford in my lifetime. You can't afford housing. Housing and rent is is obscene. And so I look at these young people and what they're dealing with, and I'm just like, well, good God. And then you're telling them it's their fault. They're in debt. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. We're doing this to them. Their parents and their grandparents sold them out. I'm part of that group that can't afford anything. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't blame you. I blame <laughs> us, right? Like we allowed this to happen on our watch is when this happened and healthcare is part of this. Definitely. So how do we fix this mess? Looking at other models, right? If we just look uh, northwards from where you are, the model is good. And after talking to you, I feel like if anybody from Quebec hears me and I say that the healthcare system is good here, I'm going (laughs) to, they're going to catch some heat. (laughs) I'm going to get some heat. I mean, in comparison, right? Because we're talking about what is better, not as what is perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. But the model we have here in theory and on paper and somewhat in practice and for certain people, it is good. But I feel like I also can't say that because I just said something that triggers me to feel something when I say that for certain people, there are situations that have happened recently that prove that we have a lot, a lot of work to do where I am in Quebec to make sure that healthcare is accessible for everyone equally. So we do have this universal healthcare, but certain people definitely do not have access 
as others do. So I live in a city. I live in southern Quebec. In northern Quebec, we have indigenous communities who do not have the same access. It's very remote. Often we have to fly people south to get care. People come here and they die. There's systemic racism in our system, in our healthcare system. There are many different groups of people who get treated badly in our healthcare system. I've seen it because I worked in it. It's hard to see. I think the the most heart-wrenching situations are when I have when I've had patients come from northern communities who have to go back and who are terrified of going back home because they're worried about what what's going to happen to them next. Like I had a patient I was working in a community clinic. I had an indigenous patient who had been flown down. He had a mechanical heart, so it was hooked up on the outside of his body. So if anything happens to the machinery on the outside of his body, that is his heart. Just having that already walking through the world is very stressful. But then if you're going back home, there are rotations of doctors. So you don't always have a doctor. You don't always have nurses. You have a station there that nurses and medical professionals from the South have to rotate through your community, come for a few months, then go back home, then come for a few months. There are times where the access is scarce and you're not going to always get a specialty doctor, right? And for that specific kind of machinery, you need a cardiologist. You need a specific, uh, someone who is very well-versed in this. Even when I saw it, it was the first time I had seen it. And he was like, I don't want to go home, but like, what am I supposed to do? I don't live in Montreal. I have to go home. But he was scared because if anything happens, will he survive the flight to come back to get it fixed? Is there anybody up there in the North who's able to attend to it? Who knows it? I'd never seen it before. What are the odds that the nurse who's rotating or the nurses who are rotating up there have seen it before? Well, you're talking about a specialty there, but also when you talk about the rotation, you have the problem of losing institutional knowledge, right? The people that have worked there and know the patients and know the area then get moved out and the and person comes in, they have to then reorient somebody new. Like, okay, exactly. yeah, I was in here last year and I had this issue with, I saw Dr. So-and-so and I mean, sure, you're going to have notes, but it's not the same as being the doctor that saw you before. It's true. That is something that happens there. And then also you have these kind of gaps in your care because you have to always leave your life, your work, your this and that to come down to Montreal or wherever big city. I'm talking again for specialists and sometimes you can't leave. It disrupts your life. You're away from your family. You're going through something. You're in a city you don't know. It's really unideal. For a country that has universal health care, for your health care to be so unorganized is very stressful. For even more routine things, yeah, there are, there are breaks in um, the continuity of care when you have medical professionals rotating in and out and who are kind of needing to uh, learn the grounds all over again and you're starting from zero. And then you have the insensitivity. So I've had this situation many, many times where I have an Indigenous patient who is telling me I had someone who had a car accident and who had polytrauma and needed care in Montreal because the infrastructure in their community wasn't developed enough to be able to attend to all of their injuries. So they needed to be flown down. The first thing that they told me was it wasn't an ATV accident. I think that's what it's called, like a four-wheel scooter, like a Right, four-wheeling. We, we have yeah, a four-wheeling. Yeah. And I was like, well, I didn't assume it was. And he told me that everybody assumes that that's all we do in the North. And 
And that's how we all get into our accident. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like there is that feeling there when all of your family have had horrible stories about accessing care, you go into whatever care you need to get with a suit of armor ready to face all the racism. talk about systemic racism, at least in regards to our Indigenous communities, without talking about Joyce Eshaquan, who live streamed her experience in the hospital. She died, unfortunately. But while she was filming her last moments, you could hear the nurses tell her, this is your fault. You should be ashamed of yourself. They thought she was withdrawing from drugs, but she was not. And so they were restraining her to the bed. And she was complaining of her symptoms and she was being ignored and she was being called names and was not being cared for. And she died. And after that incident, there were some recommendations and some principles that are called the Joyce principles that were suggested to be implemented in our healthcare system to be able to provide more sensitive care and to be more aware of cultural differences. Because the way that we provide healthcare and the way that Indigenous communities provide healthcare is different. There's other spiritual aspects that are involved. And, you know, when you're providing care, you're providing holistic care. So the person's culture also has to come into play somehow in the way that you're caring for them. So they were suggesting we provide uh, culturally sensitive care. They were rejected by our Quebec government because in the principles and in the propositions that they were suggesting, they were talking a lot about systemic racism. And in Quebec, our Quebec government loves to say that that doesn't exist here. They're like, a racism does, but institutionalized racism does not exist. And so they refused it. But what we did get, and I had to do these, mandatory trainings. So you have a video online and you have to click next a million times, finish the training and you log your hours and it's done. Nobody's paying attention to that. That changes nothing. There's that aspect that in Quebec, we have a model that works, doesn't serve everybody. It endangers some. In my own community, in the Black community, there's this myth that Black people don't feel pain. I'm sure that exists in the United States, too. That's why there's a high mortality rate with Black women. Or uh, Yeah, we absolutely have research on that. So, yes, that's a thing. Exactly. And so if you don't speak French here, or at least English, and you need to get care, you can hear it. You can hear it from the other nurses. Oh, my gosh. You know, like, there's already this complaint that this person is a bother because of their difference. And so this is individual people. This is, you know, we have institutionalized racism. We have all these issues in uh, our healthcare system. The model on paper works. I think it's a good model where I live. There's a lot of work to be done. But if I were to compare it to the United States, at least I'm able to seek care and not have the anxiety of if tomorrow I get an unfortunate diagnosis of some sort. I don't only have to worry about the stress of the diagnosis, but I also have to worry about the stress of how am I going to get care? That doesn't cross my mind. My mind is only stressed about, well, what if I get that diagnosis? An additional problem that the cost causes here in the U.S. is that people put off going to a doctor Mm -hmm. where some folks would just be like, man, maybe I should get this checked out. People here are more like, I'll just wait. Maybe it'll resolve itself. 
that's seen as being responsible to not just like rush to the doctor over every little thing. But what ends up happening is that illnesses progress to a point that it's more advanced when they finally do go to a doctor. And usually they're afraid to go to the doctor because of the cost. That's seen as a good thing to delay it. Yeah, because we look at it like, oh, you don't want to go to the doctor for every little thing. This is the mindset that they want people to have in order to maximize profits. Don't use your insurance. Yeah, just they like, don't want to pay out. Yeah. They don't want to pay you get out. a ding on your car, maybe just you pay for it. Don't You don't want to get those points on your insurance. Yeah. So they want to dissuade you from using your insurance because they cost them money when you use your insurance. So you just pay them and you don't ever use it. That's a good thing for them. And so then they use social conditioning to get you to think that that's actually good for you too. It's like, no, it's not good for you, but you're convinced that it is that, you know, I'm not just going to rush to the doctor for this little thing. Like, oh, good. Then wait till it gets worse and and then see what happens. Yeah, there's definitely that. And there's also if you have to pay out of pocket a certain amount before your insurance kicks in, it might be like, well, maybe I'll wait a little bit to see if it goes because it's between me paying the rent and like paying a thousand three hundred for this cardiac testing. Uh, I'll just wait to see if this chest pain resolves itself. Exactly. If I eat better and do a little bit more exercise for the next few weeks, maybe I'll feel better. You know. So yeah, people do put off going and getting things checked out here. You had posted a few things online about your own struggles with healthcare and insurance companies and so on, and I thought that was interesting. I always find things like that interesting because I'm in healthcare the way that the things work in the United States to be so strange. <laughs> Every time I post about U.S. insurance and U.S. healthcare, you know, access, I get a lot of feedback where people will basically say, yeah, we have this or that problem with our system, but I wouldn't want to be in the U.S. I do appreciate your frank conversation about the actual issues that you all do face, that you're not coming here and saying it's all sunshine and rainbows and butterflies. We have issues in Canada with our health system. The thing is, I have never yet had one person on a thread say, boy, I would take your system over ours. (laughs) I have not had one of those comments, but I have had multiple comments with people complaining about their healthcare systems and saying, but you know what? (laughs) Wouldn't trade you for the world. The U.S. can have it. The other thing that concerns me, though, is that all of the people saying that will say they're trying to bring that here. They're trying to privatize here. I know that the NHS, for example, is in jeopardy because we've got that whole private insurance and private health care mentality creeping in to other countries that actually have healthcare systems where it's not perfect, but they wouldn't trade, but they are slowly and stealthily trading. That's a very good point, actually, that you bring up, because I was listening to the radio the other day. They were talking about the fact that we have a shortage of family doctors, like primary health physicians. So a lot of people are going to the ERs to get simple prescriptions, blood tests, things that could be done easily with a family doctor. But since we have such a shortage, people are going elsewhere and making the wait times at the emergency very long. And so instead of doing that, we have private companies coming in now and people are using insurance that they get with their employers to navigate the private system. So the issue that I was listening to on the news was it was this private company that had family doctors who had extra time because 
doctors don't work like a 40 hour work week. They work like three shifts. I don't remember the exact number, but they had a lot of extra time on their hands. And so they were saying, after you're done filling in your shifts for the public system, if you are able to give us at least one shift, two shifts to be able to work in this private sector and give prescriptions, do telehealth or something to kind of supplement to free up the emergency rooms, to free up space for people who need critical care. The government, they were trying to shut them down, saying that we need to prioritize the public system. They wanted to shut them down. And so the person who was being interviewed was, he was one of the family doctors that worked for that company, but he was one of the founders as well. And he was saying that what we would like is that the government work with us instead of trying to see us as competition and shut us down, make it unfavorable for private companies to be able to do this, make it more accessible, fix the issues so that we don't exist. We would like to not exist. That means that our universal health care is working. When people already pay for health care in their taxes and then realize that the system is not working for them because it's taking too long to be able to see this specialist or that, or we do have to wait a bit sometimes. Like me, I have a blood test coming up and it's six months away. I have to wait six months to get a blood test with my Medicare card. If I want to go private, I can do it tomorrow. I can go through my group insurance and go to a private clinic and get it done. It's kind of shifting in a way that since our universal health care is struggling, people are choosing to pay again because we do have a portion, like you said, depending on what uh, insurance plan you have, maybe it's fully covered, maybe you have to pay a certain percentage of it, but people are paying again. We're already paying with our taxes, but since it's kind of hard to navigate and we need our care sooner than later, we're choosing to pay again and go private. And so the government's struggling with that because they want private companies to not take over the healthcare system, but they're unable to properly manage it so that it functions like a, a better well-oiled machine. So I do understand what you're saying. I do see that we are using private companies more and using our group insurance more, let's say, to be able to complement what's missing from our care here. I do see that it is creeping in and I'm hearing talks about it more. And, and I do see that still. I was kind of going into this conversation being like, uh, my healthcare system sucks. <laughs> but <laughs> after this conversation, I still stick by what I have here for sure. Here in the US, we have learned that what you're describing, we artificially induce. So we defund our schools, we defund our libraries, we defund all of our systems. We pare it down to the bare bones, the postal service, like all of it. And then when it starts to break, we say, look, this public system sucks. We need a private system. So when you're describing like, hey, we have legitimate gaps in our healthcare here and private enterprises seeing that as a way to insert itself, here in the U.S., we actually destroy the systems on purpose in order to then be able to promote that they are having problems and that we need a private company to come in and save them. We sabotage our systems. It's shocking, but since there's such a long history of like the United States making these non-progressive decisions, but we can't get exhausted because there are lives at stake. That's why things like Black Lives Matter exist, but it's not just because our lives matter, but it's the quality of our lives that matter too. So I just want to say thank you, Joanna, for joining me today. That was a really interesting conversation. I appreciate everything that you brought to the table. Any last comments? Thank you very much for having me here. I appreciate the time to discuss with you. It's been, been informative. 
I just want to say as a closing that we are here, we were here, and we discussed both models to discuss the differences. There are many similarities, but the differences and to talk about what is better. I still like my model <laughs> better than the U.S. model with all that it has to improve. And hopefully, honestly, I just wish that everybody could get safe, inclusive, respectful care. You're a human. We live here on Earth and it shouldn't be so difficult to just be healthy or to at least access something that can help you live a happy, healthy life. It's so hard out here to navigate these things that can just be basic for us to, to survive. I mean, it's not looking great, but I'm just hoping that one day we can all get the care that we need. That would be good. I agree. I would like to see <laughs> no. that too. All right. Well, thank you. No problem. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.